Welcome to The Lowdown, KMXT's new daily show dedicated to giving you the up-to-date information we have available on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it's impacting life on Kodiak Island. The Lowdown will focus on the facts as provided to us by local and state officials. During the show, we give you access to local officials and experts on COVID-19 and community actions related to it. If you have questions for our guests, please email them to lowdown at kmxt.org or call KMXT at 486-3181. You can find a list of upcoming guests on our Facebook page or on our website, kmxt.org. Audio from each day's program will be posted on the website. To the sad, sad truth, the dirty Morning. Thanks for tuning into the Wednesday medical edition of the Lowdown on the Dock of the Rock. Uh, this is the day of the week we're reserving to bring you up to date on what's happening in the medical world in our community, at the hospital, the clinics, from the administrators, doctors, and staff who are on the front line in Kodiak helping us navigate through this situation. I have some questions. I think we can probably fill up the hour easily, but there's room for your questions as well. We've had a few come in so far. So if you have a question, please call 486-3181 or shoot us a lowdown, a lowdown at kmxt.org, uh, your question there. And we'll try and get an answer from you as, uh, during the course of the show. Even Jones from Canada is again in the studio along with Elsa DeHart from Public Health, Dr. Curtis Mortensen from the Kodiak Community Health Center. And uh, new to the panel this week is Dr. John Everett from Providence Emergency Services. Thank you all for coming in again and uh, sharing your time with the community for another hour. Uh, boy, a lot happened in the course of a week um, from when we last met last Wednesday. Uh, things weren't opening yet. We were still dealing with our first positive case. And then as information came out through the community that questioned whether we, or not we had a positive case. And we got a mandate from the governor that said the state was going to open up. And uh, the local local council decided that they were going to go along with the governor. And all of a sudden, we had a community that was starting to reopen again as of Friday. Um, lots changed in the world during the, during the course of that week. Um, let's, let's first talk about, let's get the information out there about testing. What is a positive test? What is a negative test? Um, how, do, how, we, how are we looking at that? And do we, in fact, have a positive test in Kodiak? So I think I, I can take that one. Um, so there's, there's different types of tests, and I, I'll stay away from the serologic test or the antibody test for now. Um, but the test we have that we're running through the state is called a PCR test or polymerase chain reaction test. And then the ones we have in the clinics are these rapid ID tests, which are molecular tests that look for active, uh, look for virus uh, DNA or RNA in the that they actually are looking for the actual viral RNA. And um, these tests are, when they're positive, are really, really good. Um, the question is the the false negative, the the um, false negative rate, and that there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, part of it is the collection of the specimen, how it's uh, preserved. But um, in general, when we're talking about whether uh, we've had a positive, uh, when uh, we had our positive, it was, it was a, a test that was done via uh, one of our rapid tests. 
and um, generally a positive on that is always considered a positive. That means that there was viral RNA that was there. So, The other thing, we, we kind of had some discussion last week about um, what does a negative mean, and I would like to answer to that. I, we did reach out to um, our lab director at AMC. They are very familiar with the machine. Um, they have uh, two ID docs working on it, combing through the data on this particular machine. It is pro the specificity is about ninety nine point seven, and that's what we're percent. That's what we talk about when we say, "Is this person actually infected?" When, when it comes out positive, and and in all likelihood they are infected. Are there some outliers? Yeah, I and mean, it's very rare though. Um, then we look at sensitivity. This is kind of saying how, how good a negative is a negative. Um, and when done correctly, so just so you understand, at the very beginning, because the virus, uh, you know, we've read the records, uh, the, the articles about how it lives on surfaces for so long, but it's actually a pretty fragile virus. The second we pull that swab out of the person's nose, it begins breaking down. And after two hours, it's probably fairly unreliable um, test. So we were putting it in a viral transport tube, which has liquid in it at first, and it dilutes it down. At that point, it's great for the PCR in Anchorage because it's an extremely uh, good machine. But for the Abbott uh, Laboratory, uh, the, the Abbott Quick ID one, it's probably not as good. And we're, we were uh, probably getting a higher false negative rate. When it's done correctly, where you put the swab in the person's nose, you run it to the machine, and you run it, it's greater than 95% sensitivity. Um, they haven't nailed down the exact number yet because it is still uh, a work in progress doing this correctly. We are taking these tests correctly now. So a negative, in all likelihood, is a negative now. Uh, we can't say we're not sure what a negative means at this point. Is it 100%? No, nothing's 100%. Um, but we can feel pretty reassured that a negative is a negative when we get that. I would, and I would just add to that, it's a negative at that moment in time. That is true. Based on where, how much virus is in that patient's body at that time. So we are, and like you said, that how aggressive are they with the swab? How, um, how good a, a sample did they get? And this is for... Um, a, if, if there's no virus in the nares at the, that point, but it's all in the lungs, it doesn't mean they're not infected. But likely it's going to be all over the place um, when you're pretty significantly infected. And the studies I've been reading that certainly viral load matters with this disease, but f frankly, there are people who are asymptomatic who have a very high viral load. And so just because you're asymptomatic doesn't mean you have a low viral load and it's hard to detect. Um, it's still up in the air. There's a lot to be learned about this. And I will say that whenever you do the, these tests, when they're done at the clinics, then they do send them to the state. Just the state is looking at all these things, but they're only looking at like genome testing for positive. They're not looking to confirm. They're only looking for, they'd like to find out if the, if the virus is mutating and things, um, which is a little different. They look at it differently for negatives. They're confirming, you know, the negatives, so. It's well, a little bit different, different follow-up. Break that down a little bit for the lay people who uh, may not be familiar with what you're talking about. I think there's a common perception that the test that's done in Anchorage is more accurate than the, te the rapid test. But you were actually talking about they're looking at for, for something different. 
in the positives they are. In, in the, the negatives, they are more accurate. They're doing the same PCR, but at a different level. But for the for the positives, they're just interested in beginning to look at whether this virus is mutating or not. And so that's a different kind of of work they're doing with those grains. They're not confirming that it's positive. So what's the protocol then for, for us when, when, when there is a positive, there's a secondary test that needs to go to the state for the, the second test. What happens to the individual who tested positive? Are they retested? So I think Curtis was you were saying that you send all of them to the, even the negatives go to the state. Yeah, yes. all of them yeah. do. Yeah. yeah, they just do yeah. different and that's, different testing. That's based on uh, we received our machine through the state, and the state is mandating us to send all samples to to all of the samples we do on rapid test also to the state. I'm talking nationwide now. What is the protocol for people who are positive for for COVID, and for follow-up testing to figure out whether they're still positive? So it's interesting because I think that's actually going to change here in the next. Uh, rumor has it is that the CDC is going to change their guidelines on that. But there's there's two there's two different uh, criteria. There's a testing-based criteria for for getting out of isolation, and then there's just a a time-based, symptom-based criteria, and um, you know the um, the the testing-based criteria requires you do s tests at different times to make sure that things have cleared. The um, the symptom-based one is just a it's based on amount of time and when your symptoms started, and when they're when they resolve. So you have to have no fever for three days without using uh, you know antipyretics like Tylenol or ibuprofen. And then you have to have be over seven days since your symptoms started. And so those are the two criteria right now. However, I will say the state of Alaska, the head guy, uh, Dr. McLaughlin from the state of Alaska said that the CDC is going to be changing that criteria later this week. <laughs> so I would just take that with a grain of salt. But like there's basically two different methods by which you can kind of, I hate to use the word clear, but uh, you know, when you can come off of self-isolation from if you've had COVID. So it's going to expand again? Is that what you're saying? The length of time that, um, and again, this is, this is uh, you know, a little bit hearsay, but I, I, I trust the information I'm getting from Dr. McLaughlin because he's involved in the actual meetings with the CDC and such, but um, is that the, if somebody has COVID or is presumed to have COVID, right now the criteria for getting off self-isolation is greater than seven days after you first started having symptoms and three days without a fever. And that will like, is likely gonna be changing to 10 days since the symptoms started, based on just the more recent evidence. And yeah, just to piggyback a little bit on what Dr. Mortensen said, um, as a practical matter for, for the average person who tests positive for COVID, there's a period of quarantine, there's symptom monitoring, and then there's guidance from primary care physician or you know plus or minus the help of epidemiology for when it's okay to resume normal activity whether that's leaving the house or um, you know resuming work or whatever um, there are different groups of people that are that are considered as maybe higher stakes for um, if they do leave quarantine you know and being potentially still uh, uh, at risk healthcare workers for example 
of the doctors were to test positive, they would be quarantined, and then there might be a higher level of scrutiny or a longer period of isolation before they could go back and work in the ER or resume, you know, yeah. physician activities. So, but it's evolving, and it's, you know, literally every day criteria are changing. And like we were talking about before, a month ago, we were sort of interested in people with fevers who had been traveling out of the country, and now there's this whole long list of, Concerning symptoms that, that we consider. Well, now it seems like with the expansion of the symptoms, that just about everybody walking around that has any kind of a symptom is a, a COVID patient, right? Well, yeah, the list of things that would prompt us to consider testing is growing literally by the day. I mean, I think, you know, there was a TV commercial the other day where they listed off 14 things that would make you think about needing testing. So. Got to be really bad for the hypochondriacs in the community, huh? Yeah. Uh, I mean, what what are the new things that we're you're supposed to look at as a potential symptom of of having COVID? Do you want the list? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, do, do we want to do that? I mean, you guys are in the business of having so, you having to deal with people. So uh, yesterday, the state of Alaska released new new uh, guidelines or recommendations for who should be tested, and and once again, that that list gets longer uh, of symptoms, and the the testing becomes more liberalized as we get more as we build more testing capacity, and um, and so you know the symptoms range from the typical fever, cough, shortness of breath, and now there's you know the diarrhea, uh, nausea, and then you know. Um, let people talk about loss of taste, loss of smell, but even things like fatigue, headache, muscle aches. I mean, these are all just really, um, it's quite a variety. I was just joking, you know, earlier, like, you know, I I had a patient that was pregnant in the first trimester last, you know, earlier last week that was having nausea and vomiting, which is, you know, something that typically we would kind of um, have great empathy for, but wouldn't think of COVID. And now we kind of have to change our, our mantra to think that even that might be potentially, you know, a, a COVID case. And, and so, um, you know, we've been really instructing our staff. Um, we have to take every, we have to take the precautions, just thinking that everybody treat everybody as if they are a COVID case, because we know there's a large amount of asymptomatic carriers. Um, we know that uh, people have these atypical symptoms. And so the, the stuff that doesn't go out of style are, you know, the hand hygiene and the washing spaces down, the, you know, trying to do your best to keep a safe uh, environment. So that's got to change the whole way that you do business now. I mean, you, instead of maybe thinking 30 or 40 percent of the people walking through the door now, every person that walks in the door is a potential client. That has to be kind of stressful. I think that... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that as, as someone who's in leadership at the clinic, it's something that causes me a, a great deal of, of concern because, you know, our, our obviously our highest priority is to keep our workforce safety and our, and, and our patients safe. And so, um, you know, I think that there's been creative ways. I, I, I think I talked about a few of these things last week. We basically, I know the ER has done a lot of things to make sure that people are kind of screened outside the building. Uh, we've gone to these universal masking policies. Um, we basically don't use our waiting room anymore. People check in from the parking lot and they just come straight into the room. There's just a lot of things that you end up doing to try and, and make sure that we're providing care safely. But um, it's, it's getting harder to delineate, you know, um, who is the high risk and versus the not, not high risk. And on, on the uh, emergencies, 
medical services side, it's it's the same thing. You know, we're getting ambulance calls, and it's more often the case that we don't know what's going on until the EMS providers arrive on scene, and patients are often distressed or intoxicated, or you know, there's a lot of commotion going on, and it's really difficult to get a good screening in as far as COVID risk under those circumstances. So we're trying to you know have multiple levels of, of screening. There's a dispatch starts with a screen when they take the call, and then there's the EMS provider screen, and then we try to screen before they come into the emergency department. And even so, it's often the case that we end up sort of treating someone as presumptively at risk for COVID and, um, and until we can at least confirm with a negative rapid test that we can relax our, our uh, uh, precautions. Um, we have a lot of questions about um, whether or not this has already been through the community. You know, there's a, a, a lot of rumors going around about how there were symptoms that weren't uh, consistent or that had been tested for flu back in February, January, and uh, a belief that herd immunity has already occurred in the community. Have you folks been hearing that, and how would you respond to it? Yeah, I think there's uh, very sincere inquiries. There's some people who are angry and saying we shouldn't be doing this, but at the same time, there's some people who are very sincere that I had these all these symptoms that you're listing with this. I I had and our my family went through this and we had difficulty breathing and a cough that wouldn't go away that really wasn't that productive, and they lay it down and it, it does sound very convincing. Um, and even some cases out in Dutch um, where, boy, when we look back to December, it does sound a lot like COVID-19, but there's a lot of diseases that look like this, so it's hard to say for sure. I think we have talked about um, you know, checking people for immunity to it. it. It will be interesting to me to see how that bears out once we start doing that. Uh, Dr. Kohler uh, at his clinic has uh, a, a way of checking for immunoglobulins. How accurate it is, I have no idea. Um, uh, all these machines are fairly new. And so it'll be interesting to see, does, does, is there a large segment of Kodiak that has uh, IgG or IgM towards this? Um, immunoglobulins towards this or is it was it just a bad flu that went through and it was a non-typable flu which we have pretty often I mean I think that the information that we do have to go on as far as with um, you know by this time between the the clinics um, there's been a, a lot of a lot of testing and the fact that we only have one positive case out of all the tests we've done would um, with how contagious this virus is, the likelihood of widespread disease within our community is would be really unlikely. It would, uh, it would take a long time to fizzle out. Yeah. So you know, if it really did rage through here in January, and we started testing in March, the chance of it being gone uh, by then would be highly unlikely. Um, because when we get a good bout of influenza through here, it's not as contagious as COVID nineteen. But it'll stick around for a couple of months and kind of get passed around the community. And so the chance of it coming through, hitting a bunch of people, and then leaving undetected is pretty low. And I really think the entire nation is beginning to look at this. You know, we have to get through this initial 
you know, response as things are really working. And then, you know, down the line, those kinds of studies are going to be done. And, you know, especially in New York, L.A., where they have big populations of people to see what the level may have actually been at some point. And those are all epidemiological studies, which are fascinating. I just don't think we're quite there yet. Okay. I think, um, you know, it's, it's reassuring at this point that we've, we have tested upwards of, I think, around 300 people. A little over 300, yeah. just had the one, uh, the one positive case so far. Um, you know, I think Kodiak sort of, you know, geographically we're isolated and that helps. I think it also helps that we don't have a big population density. Um, but I also think it's, you know, it, it possibly speaks to, you know, people being pretty diligent about social isolation and, and uh, hygiene. Is there a mic? Yeah, we're having a, we're having a volume problem on that microphone. Oh, okay. So that's 11. That's 11 that we turn yeah. it off? He's on 12 now. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, 317 Wait. today is of today we've tested. 317, but that's that's not a significant increase over last week, is it? Oh, it's actually quite a bit. We were like, I think it's like probably 60 more tests than we had last week. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're it's moving. We're moving up quickly. So are people moving through the process as quickly as they can? I, mean, I just assumed that there was a lot of people now with new symptoms that and testing being that easy to do now that it was sort of like if anybody wanted one, you can come in and get one. Well, so we're still not just testing like, you know, it's not the, uh, you know, go by Safeway and, and just grab a, you know, swab. It's still not just like, uh, we, we do call it drive-through testing, but it's not drive-through in the way of like, you know, you can uh, just, just come in and do it on demand. Um, and, and part of that is, is, is still testing capacity. We, we couldn't test 12,000 people, um, you know, right now, although that, that capacity is building. Um, we're still predominantly testing symptomatic people, uh, with a few exceptions. Um, but in, in general, we're, we're predominantly testing, uh, symptomatic people still. So that still requires someone to actually be seen and, and, and evaluated at least over the phone. Um, there are a few ways, again, with these state testing requirements, there's a few ways they're opening up testing for some symptomatic, symptom, or sorry, asymptomatic people. Um, specifically, some in regards to those that are going to be hospitalized, uh, those that are um, undergoing urgent or emergent procedures, and then there's a few other caveats regarding people that are in, you know, congregated areas like pri in prisons or, um, you know, uh, assisted living facilities, things like that, um, that there's, there's some testing that you would do on asymptomatic people in those scenarios as well. But like we said, the threshold of symptoms from when we first started this till now has gone down tremendously. And at first, if you just had a fever, we'd be like, okay, well, stay at home and let us know how you're doing. Now now we would be more likely to test you. Okay. It really is broadening. And I know that um, I've been, I'm on some statewide testing committees, but they're beginning to talk about like the Fred Myers on the mainland may begin to have testing like available in the stores. And so it really is broadening, but it's still the capacity across the whole country yet yeah, isn't to where we can just test everybody. We'll get there, maybe. Hopefully. I have a question from a listener. If there's been one positive case not travel-related, does that mean someone, others could have COVID, here have COVID? 
I guess they're asking whether or not there's more cases that we just don't know about. That could be, and we kind of think that that one case was probably somebody traveling through. Um, you know, we don't know for sure, but so even though that person hadn't traveled, they may have been in contact with somebody who had traveled. We, we don't know for sure, and there could have been. There could be somebody here who has resolved symptoms and stayed in quarantine like they were supposed to and never really got very sick, and, and, um, but we don't know that. So how, how fast are things changing in emergency services? I mean, are, is it a, a weekly uh, upgrade of what you have to do? Yeah, it's uh, short answer is things are changing rapidly. Um, again, a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, the evolving definition of who is at risk for having COVID exposure. Um, you know, we talked about the long list of, of symptoms and, and that basically includes almost everyone that we do an EMS run on. So we, we are rapidly avoiding, uh, rapidly approaching the point where um, when our providers arrive on scene, they are presuming people to be COVID exposure until proven otherwise. So again, we're doing, you know, we're trying to do multiple levels of screening before they actually come into the hospital. Um, including, you know, assessing people briefly out in the parking lot before we decide whether they need to be placed in our one negative pressure room or can be dealt with elsewhere. Um, EMS providers are often arriving in, you know, full PPE, the mask and the N95 and the gowns. And um, that's, you know, I don't see that being relaxed um, anytime in the near future. If anything, it's going to be, our suspicion is going to be ramped up. Is it is it uh, is it affecting the personnel that work there? I think so. You know, I think it's affecting us all. We, you know, eight weeks ago we walked into the emergency department in our street clothes and washed our hands and you know put on gloves and kind of did our thing. And now there's a, there's a whole level of of uh, scrutiny, starting with you know taking our temperature before we even come into the hospital and having a special place to put on our gloves and gowns and. Um, basically spending the entire, uh, you know, for ER doctors, it's a 24-hour shift wearing a mask and, you know, uh, being extra vigilant. And similarly, the EMS providers are, you know, they're wearing PPE pretty much their entire shift. So how do you maintain your mel mental health through this? The longer this goes on, with with more, you, you having to be ultra alert all the time with extra gear on, how do you, how do you, how do you stay sane? Everybody's looking at me, so I guess I'll take that one. <laughs> You're the only sane one. <laughs> you know, I, I think that uh, we try real hard to um, make sure that that we're we're trying to do the things to reach um, staff and 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 keep people connected. It's one of the things that I've noticed is that we have a lot of. A lot of people that are working off-site now and um, doing telemedicine from home or even our counselors and stuff doing counseling from home, um, some of our admin stuff, and trying to find ways to connect and kind of normalize uh, the situation as much as you can. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that um, putting, putting praise where praise is due, I think that overall as a community, I think that we've it really done actually a very nice job of, I think, coming together and and, and uh, doing things that are gonna protect our community the best they can. And I think that's gonna continue. And, and uh, so, uh, it, with that said, 
you know, I had a provider meeting yesterday morning with all my providers at clinic and I told them all the, I gave them all these updates. And then yesterday afternoon, these updates come out from the state that are different than what I just told them. So it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it, the, the amount of change and the, the frequency with, with that change is coming through just requires just really good communication. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a challenge, but it's, that's been going, I think overall things have gone pretty well. And I feel like you, you got to focus on what, what can I control? If you worry about the things you can't control, you will become overwhelmed in this life. And people uh, get worried about uh, so many things that they have no say in. And the big things you can do um, are take care of yourself, being as healthy as possible, eating right, exercising, doing all those things. Those are all things you can actually do. Um, washing your hands when you go out, things like that. But, you know, whether some random person coughs on you, there's some things that, you, that are out of your control and it's not worth worrying about. Um, and I don't. I, it's, it's, there's some things that I, I've, I haven't fully agreed with everything that we've done in controlling the virus. That's okay. Um, there's some really smart people trying their best to do the right thing and extending grace to others even when you don't fully agree with them that's great i mean it's it's out of your control and do the things that you feel like you need to do rather than worrying about what everyone else should be doing makes it a lot easier john is there been a decrease in requests for emergency services we well I think the short answer is yes. Um, we're definitely making fewer runs, and I'm gonna um, I'm gonna ask the chief to call and correct me if I'm wrong about that. I think we're having lower volume overall. Um, what we are getting is more fr frequently people are calling the emergency department and asking whether they should come in versus whether um, things could be managed at home overnight and then they can reconnect with their primary care provider. We're getting a lot of that and that's been fairly successful. Um, I think overall in the emergency department we're getting fewer um, what I would call non-emergency visits. You know people are and at the same time we're not missing out on people um, who really should have come into the emergency department and then had a worse outcome because they stayed at home. So I think that's working reasonably well. Yeah, I, I would say that one one thing I, I am seeing though is, is people are are trying to avoid uh, you know medical services, which I think is is appropriate in a lot of cases. But um, you know, there's I've seen some cases where people probably sat on things more than they probably should have at home. So I, I would encourage people that if if they are having you know some sort of severe symptoms to to not be as scared of uh, certainly not calling up a medical facility to either their primary care office or um, wherever they're at, but, um, or, or trying to make an appointment, a telehealth appointment, those, those type of things would be still warranted in this time because things, people do have appendicitis and different things happen, you know, during this time. Yeah, we, about, I, I'm probably a, a low percentage. Most of the uh, providers at Canada are probably doing the majority of their call, uh, their health through telephone calls or video conferencing. We can video conference with anyone who has a smartphone and uh, so that we can see what's going on with you, hear what you, what you have to say. So don't be afraid to reach out and, and have a visit with us. I'm going to jump into a question I got online and I, I'm, if you're not comfortable answering it, John, I'm not sure uh, this this would be one of those things I'd direct to Gina or Bill or Steve, I think. But 
It says, wouldn't it be safer for the public if Providence would open a specialty clinic for time-sensitive procedures instead of having people go to Anchorage? A specialty clinic for time-sensitive procedures. Like yeah. Specialists uh, coming down. Or sending uh, a single-care provider here to service many patients so it would cut down on public exposure to bring, co bring providers to Kodiak for specialty service stuff by charter. Yeah. It's kind I, of two questions, I believe. Yeah. I, 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 it's an interesting question. I don't have a really good answer for that. Um, I'm, I'm sort of out of the loop as far as what happens with people who need non-emergent yeah. uh, medical interventions. I'm, I'm in the emergency, emergency. department, yeah. so I don't, I don't know. I, do, I mean, I do think that, um, and I can't speak on behalf of, of necessarily the Providence Specialty Clinic, um, but um, I can tell you that like, there's been certain services that we are providing more of here during this time. Um, with kind of specialty guidance, for example, uh, chemotherapeutic, uh, chemotherapy for patients. Um, a lot of the oncologists in Anchorage, we've been kind of doing a lot of the chemotherapy here in Kodiak, as opposed to having those patients travel back and forth, even more so than we did before. And um, that's one service that's been off offered that's, that is very time sensitive, obviously. Um, you know, in regards to having specialists come down from Anchorage, you know, again, <laughs> Um, I think that the, the hard part is that you're, there's the exposure of having that person come from Anchorage too. So I think that there's a little bit of a, it's a give and take there. And um, I'm not sure when they're going to open up those services again or what the plan is for that. Um, you, had a, you had a pile of paperwork with you when you came in and you were talking about the briefing that you had with the staff the other day. And it seemed pretty interesting of what some of those new protocols are. I mean, you want to talk a little bit about how things are changing on? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I kind of, uh, I have it here for, for reference, uh, and I'm certainly not going to read through it. Um, <laughs> but we, we did talk about a few of the things already, which is, is basically that the testing guidelines are shifting. They're, they're becoming uh, more all-encompassing. There's more symptoms associating with, associated with it. And even in some cases, testing of asymptomatic people is part of it. Um, and so those are kind of the main, the main thrusts of the new guidelines. Um, the other thing that I, I think ought to be said, and I know that I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to talk about this more maybe next week a little bit, but there are pretty concrete guidelines, both from uh, the state and also from the Infectious Disease Society of America regarding these antibody tests. And, uh, you know, they're really not recommending them for the purposes of patient care. Um, right now, they're, they're recommended for a few purposes, one being for, like, studies of, of, of prevalence um, of disease, but primarily in areas where there's thought to be a higher prevalence. Um, and then there's, there is uh, some, some of the testing is being done to do work on treatments. So, like, this convalescent plasma program, so that where they, they see who has antibodies, they take that plasma and they give it to patients that are acutely ill. So there is a few scenarios where the antibody testing is being used, but for, for testing a patient that's in the exam room, or I should say on a Zoom visit with me now, um, it, for testing that patient, um, the likelihood that that antibody test is gonna help me actually treat that patient is, is basically negligible because we don't know whether those antibodies are protective against the infection. We don't know whether it's a cross-reacting other coronavirus, maybe not COVID-19, but another coronavirus. Um, 
And uh, the other piece of information, and this is, I don't want to get too much in statistics, but if you have a prevalence of disease of less than 5%, then um, these tests, um, they're probably a, a coin flip if they're positive of whether they're accurate or not. And I'm not going to go into the uh, Bayesian statistics on that, but like basically the lower the prevalence of the disease, the less accurate a positive uh, antibody test here is. is. And, um, and it, there's a nice write-up. I could even provide this for you for show notes or something like that that, that kind of talks about that. I, I think it's probably not a great thing to talk about on the radio. I, I actually have to do like a little <laughs> chart and, 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 and do it out for myself. But, um, but anyways, so I, I just don't think that the serologic tests are probably ready for prime time in the, in the realm of patient care right now. Yeah, the other tough part is we actually don't know for sure how long it takes to turn positive antibody. So you may have been infected for a week and a half. One, one study I said it was a little over 10 days before you start doing IgM positive patients. So they could be positive for a week and a half before it's detectable. And so it's a tough one, I mean, but you, you could say that with the, the, there's definitely flaws with all the different tests that are out there right now. Um, I, but l like you said, to me, the interest for the antibody test is not for diagnosis purposes. It is just to see, do we have immunity in the community, which I'm highly doubtful of. Um, uh, but like you said, places where it's been through pretty heavily already, how many people have immunity to this? And once again, we discussed it last week, can people get reinfected? Is that a possibility? So this is, testing is really interesting because it, it, it seems like we've, rush things to market in a way mm -hmm. and and gotten a lot of tests on i mean when you folks were in last week and talking about the the test you had it was a work in progress where you were continually learning new things to see whether or not the the how the machine would best work um now that all the news reports i hear about the antibody testing it's questionable whether a lot of them are even accurate um so from a treatment standpoint, I guess we're, we're in a good situation now with the rapid testing and being able to send off the, the results to Anchorage and using the uh, social distancing protocols and keeping people isolated is the best way to treat people um, to keep it from spreading, right? True. Yeah, I mean, I think that having robust testing um, and... and, and um, being able to test people as soon as they develop symptoms. And I, I really liked um, what uh, Dr. Zink and Zink said the other, uh, I was on an update of some sort. She talked about if, if, you, if you can't remember how many people you've been in con close contact with in the past few days, then you're seeing too many people <laughs> yeah. because, uh, because then, you know, that makes Elsa's and the, the, you know, this contact tracing a lot harder the more people you're seeing and in really close contact with, then that makes the contact tracing a lot harder. Um, and uh, so I think that um, the combination of having really aggressive testing when people develop symptoms or when they have high-risk exposures and then um, having a robust system for this contact tracing um, are, are, are really key. But then we have to do our part as community members and, and try and do the appropriate social distancing and, and all those things too. Well, from Dr. Fauci yesterday, you know, he, he said that 
the second wave is inevitable. And there's a perception here that we even ha haven't even had a wave here. Mm -hmm. So are we preparing for a first wave? Or are we thinking that at some point in time we're, we're going to get a wave of any kind? I, I loved Curtis's thing that he said the other day, that when this first came out, the hammer was used. Mm -hmm. And... Now they're starting to ease things up, and now we're going into. Uh, you you can share it. You did a great job. <laughs> now we're going into the into the well, phase that's I, I, more of you the. Sh dance. You shouldn't quote me for that because I actually stole that from someone else. So, but um, but I mean this idea that that you you kind of when you see this wave coming, you know, when you see it kind of coming our direction, we kind of put this the hammer down, which is basically went into lockdown and the hunker down rules. And I think Alaska was really proactive. We, well, first of all, we were lucky because for whatever reason, we were late to the game. Um, but then also, we, I think we were proactive uh, as a state of shutting things down. And I think that that's really helped us to develop our testing capacity and those type of things. So now is the process of, okay, opening up, you know, things. And now begins with, we, we laid the hammer down. Now we have this dance where we're going to be you know, probably, you know, stepping on each other's toes a little bit and, and, and trying to open things up. Maybe we see not much of a bump and so we can kind of go a little bit further and, and vice versa. Maybe we open things up, we see this big bump and we say, okay, we got to close things back down. It's, it's going to be a, a give and take, I think, for a while here. Um, and, um, you know, that's going to be frustrating. Uh, but I think that uh, it's, it's going to be the reality for the, the near future. Yeah, I think Kodiak is unique in that we're, we are more isolated and we don't have the big population density. So the things that, um, you know, may be working better here than other places are because of that. You know, people are, we're not perfect about social isolation and, and hygiene, but to the extent that we're doing it, it might be benefiting us more just because there are fewer people and, um, you know, there is less of an influx of, of people coming in from, from off island, that sort of thing. I was, uh, you know, in my work with EMS, I was uh, speaking pretty regularly with the EMS providers in Juneau. And I, in my head, I was sort of using Juneau as a template for, you know, where we would be three or four weeks down the road. They started implementing, you know, various um, protocols and precautions with their ambulance providers when they were already starting to get a little bump in cases down there. And so I thought, you know, if we start doing those things now when we only have one case, then we're that far ahead of the game. And I think that that's, it's possible that those kinds of things are helping. Um, you know, and I also think it's possible that we, you know, we probably haven't had our first wave yet. You know, with all of the negative testing that we've had thus far, I would say probably not. Um, but, you know, maybe it's because we're sort of doing the right thing and we started doing the right thing earlier in the game than, than some other places. So I would encourage people to just, you know, keep doing what you're doing. If anything, mm -hmm. ramp up your efforts at, you know, hygiene and, and being safe and, you know, having a low threshold for calling your doctor. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm sort of cautiously optimistic at this point. And I think it's really hard. I think people are experiencing some quarantine fatigue a little bit, even all the providers from being so on for so long and, you know, vigilant. And it's hard to keep going and, and you know, take that deep breath like even was talking about. And uh, Well, is that what concerns you about reopening the, the economy slightly? I mean, it, what is your take on, on re, how the economy here is 
reopening? Well, just from what I've seen, I mean, people are taking it pretty seriously in places that are reopening or in a lot of places have chosen not to reopen. They've said, well, we're not ready yet. And that's okay, you know, if they're not ready to to reopen, Um, you know, one step at a time. And hopefully we can kind of keep things and not go crazy, you know, and everybody want to congregate again as they are. So we'll, we'll just I think that they're trying to they wanted to kind of wait a little longer. And the governor said, oh, we have to follow the governor's rules and so that's what they did but um i think that i think our eoc is pretty well prepared for eventualities i mean we 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 talk about trying to do the safest thing possible Mm -hmm. well the safest thing possible would be for everyone to stay home and Mm -hmm. never go anywhere for the rest of their lives (laughs) um, bubble bubble boy (laughs) but the reality is People need to earn a living. People need to get out there and make some money. There's a lot of shopkeepers who have been really killed by this. And the stimulus checks ain't enough to cover what they're losing. And I feel for the the local businesses. It has been very hard. We've talked about it before, but I think it's great when, like, Rusty opens the theater just to sell popcorn. Awesome. And the community response is what's awesome to me that... I, I went down to get some, and there was such a long line. I was like, I don't have enough time to wait through the line to support the theater, and I hope he continues to do that. But the support uh, we've we've frankly eaten out more in the past month, not because I like eating out. I, I I typically cook at home, but to support the restaurants and keep them in business because I think it's an important part of the economy. And so we as a Kodiak community need to be looking out for these small businesses. And when they open up, instead of ordering that book from Amazon, maybe going down and checking out the local bookstore and, and frequenting them. Um, I think they're doing, a, a, I think people in Kodiak are being fairly safe and cautious. And I think it's okay to open up some of these businesses in a safe, cautious manner. But understand if we get an influx where we suddenly see 20 or 30 or 40 cases of, corona, of COVID-19 in the community, Things may go back to where they were before, and we may start shutting things down again. And understand that this is the dance we're talking about. Got a really specific question for fishermen. What would you recommend if somebody gets cold-like symptoms after the boat leaves port? Do they just stay out there, or do they come back in and get tested? That's... Go ahead. Yeah, that's that's a toughie. Um, you know, on one hand, someone who is ill but not in need of hospitalization could could arguably be self quarantined out on a boat. Um, you know, but how far are they going out? What is their access to medical care? Is there risk for you know having you know needing a, a an air medevac to get back? Um, I definitely would advise if anyone's in that situation before you go, um, they, they need to have a conversation either with the um, COVID hotline nurse personnel or with a primary care or emergency provider here. Because on one hand, we don't want to you know, keep people here unnecessarily. On the other hand, we don't want to send them off you know, somewhere where if they do get uh, if they do get ill, they're going to expose other people on the vessel or require, you know, using one of our scarce resources to go out and pick them up and bring them back. So um, there's not a simple answer to that. But if you're not feeling well, the first, you know, the first thing is point of entry to, to get to do consultation to decide where to go. 
and those are such close quarters that I mean, frankly turning the boat around every time somebody gets ill is it's a tough thing to ask of people but if somebody gets very ill the next time and they're in town they, they should be tested I and mean, if they get very ill obviously you're gonna have to do something about it um, and so I, I think we could get them tested pretty quickly if they if they were coming back to town yeah, I mean, and the other part about that would be, you know, who they are exposing to it, right? So, like, you have one one crew member um, who's ill, and the others feel fine, but then they come back into town, and you know, who who knows, you know, then all those crew members go their separate ways. If you knew that that sick pa- sick patient maybe was did not have COVID, then then that might relieve some of the burden and some of the spread that might be going on in the community. But these are like you know, these scenarios are going to become increasingly common, you know, through the summer with how much travel and, and, uh, the seasonal work that we have here for sure. We we have a lot of questions along those lines. What do we do as a community to prepare for an influx of people coming for the summertime? What do you do if you've got, if you've got, you're the seasonal community, how do you deal with, you know, coming into a new community and what you can expect here. So I, I'm, I'm not hearing anything other than use common sec- sense and use uh, appropriate social distancing and be respectful and wear a mask. Yeah, I mean, we, we can't, we don't have the testing capability to bring, to test everybody who walks off the airplane or off a boat. We're, we're not there yet. Um, fortunately, it sounds like one of the canneries is testing their own people and so that's great I and mean, they're they're putting their dollars out there and getting the tests uh, on their own and so there are uh, some groups that are stepping up and testing their own people we will do the best we can to test as many people that as we can as we get more and more tests and we are trying to make it easier and easier to get people on the test but we still have a very limited supply Mm-hmm. And I think that it's still the recommendation. People are still supposed to quarantine unless they're, you know, um, for 14 days. And how they do that, there are a lot of options, but they are still supposed to separate themselves from the community when they're coming for a period of time. I think that that's the there. There is a little bit of a false security when you get in when you get one of these negative tests too, um, because it's a point in time, as as we mentioned at the very beginning. Uh, we mentioned, you know, and it's not really feasible. Well, not really feasible at this point. I didn't think a lot of things were going to be feasible, um, uh, you know, a few a month ago. But um, it's not really feasible to test every person every day for COVID. And and so I think we have to like. There's always going to be, um, you know, a common sense, somewhat of a common sense approach that if you've been sick. Um, you know, to, to, to try and not spread that illness, which is the same thing we'd recommend for other viral illnesses too. It's just, we kind of tend to forget that, you know, because it's just, you know, I got the cold. Well, how true is it that since we've all been hunkered down for six weeks, we're all like fine, you know, (coughs) excuse me, if we didn't have, there's still people coming in and out a little bit. We still have some exposures. You know, I don't, we have not been totally isolated and free from anybody coming into the community. We've worked really hard to make sure people coming into the community are, you know, quarantining themselves, but we are not free from potential. If, 
if you're in a small community and you know you've kept your kids safe and your kids are in the house and they've been there doing their schoolwork and doing things and the next door neighbor kids have been doing the same thing at what point what point do we allow the next door neighbor kids to play with our kids it's a good question i mean so I can tell you a, a, a personal story that's, that's um, I think, leads to this, this uh, you know, internal turmoil. Is so, so my folks live in town here, and I have three children. And, uh, man, do they want to see their grandparents. You know, they would, they just, they miss them immensely. And, and so, obviously, in my line of work, I'm, I'm ex a potential vector of infection <laughs> at all times. And uh, so, you know, we, we come around to Easter, you know, uh, we come around to uh, different family events, whether they be birthdays or things like that. And, you know, it's stressful because as just personally trying to make those decisions of like, do we make that, do we, do we, do we go over and see my folks, uh, you know, be, who are, you know, in the age demographic, don't worry, I'm not calling them old, I'm saying they're in the age <laughs> demographic that makes them a higher risk. And so, you know, uh, making those individual decisions is really stressful. And even for a medical provider who has, you know, knowledge of, of the, the things, you know, those individual decisions, uh, you know, are, there's not really a great guideline for them. I think that if you were to say, like, like even said, if you want to be 100% safe, then you'd be the bubble boy, right? And you'd, you'd like not have, avoid any phys physical contact or connection, but that's just not realistic. And so, um, I think there is a lot to be said for doing the best you can and there there may be circumstances and I think as things kind of open up people are going to naturally be a little bit more liberal with their physical interactions but when you can you know keeping that space you know wearing the masks doing the good hand hygiene like um, I think that every individual has to figure out what's sort of right for them to a certain extent although that's that's a real hedge answer I, have, I realize. You have a good point, too, because even if those kids were all isolated at home all the time, it's likely their parents have been to the grocery store or out, you know, doing other kinds of things. And so there's, I mean, there's always that potential. It is a balance, that dance you were talking about. And that's, you know, that's what we're going to start doing here very soon is testing the waters, so to speak. You know, we have to be really careful and see as we, you know, businesses reopen and what is happening? Are we going to have more positive cases or does it look like, you know, things are sort of settled down and we can gradually reintroduce, you know, normalcy, but we're, we'll, we'll have an answer to that fairly soon, I think, as businesses open and we can look at the response. And Well, if, if the vaccine is still a year, year and a half out, and um, I think you might even have mentioned this last week, even that, uh, eventually this is going to have to move through the community. There's really, is there a way that we could actually just say by using these these hygiene methods, we're going to actually prevent 50%, 70% of the population from actually getting the virus? So it's, it's just like chicken pox or anything else. If you've never had it, if you've never had the uh, immunization or you've never had it, you're there's a chance that you can get it. The more people who have had it around you, obviously the less chance that herd immunity we talked about, the less chance you're gonna have of getting it. If nobody in Kodiak gets this disease and we still don't have an immunization, 
a wave of this could come through the community at any time. It's it's not something to be, once again, it's not something that I'm scared about. I'm talking about it's out of my control. Um, but should we be on the lookout for it? Should we be careful? Yes. Do I understand that people need to live their lives at some point and we can't just stay in a bubble for the rest of our lives? Yeah, I get it. I get why businesses are opening. I get why people are sick of wearing masks and sick of uh, hunkering down. Um, but I, I think the, the biggest thing is we need to have a quick response if we do start seeing an uptick in the cases in this community and the community needs to be understanding of that that, that we're, we're looking out for them um so yeah it, it has to happen eventually uh there's uh oxford university is they just had an article out saying well they may be able to get a vaccine even out by this fall um if somebody said we're not gonna have a, ever develop a vaccine for this it wouldn't shock me uh, it wouldn't shock me that we, we were unable to really find something that was, would consistently protect us from this disease. And it may me mean that this is eventually slowly going to work its way through the community. Do I hope we get a vaccine soon? Absolutely. But is it a guaranteed thing? No, I don't think it is. I think our treatment of the disease will get better and better and understand that, you know, Curtis talks about the first priority is, is protecting our employees. But at the same time, we're not in a bubble. We're going to put ourselves on the line to help you and to be there for you as a community. Uh, the, the EMS personnel, the ER docs, the uh, community docs are all going to step forward and help you if you get sick. Well, a vaccine is not necessarily a magic shield, though, is it? I mean, it, it does seem that... Um, this is three coronaviruses that have affected humans in the past 20 years or so. So even if we developed a vaccine for this particular one, isn't there a possibility of a mutation that it would move into a different coronavirus that's as deadly as this one? I mean, I think that a lot of what we're doing is, is speculating based on the behavior of, of previous viruses that we do. I mean, it, it, it could be that um, this virus mutates annually, kind of like the flu. Um, it could be that um, this one stays the same, but that doesn't mean that there couldn't be another mutation of the coronavirus that happens at some later date. Um, so it's there's just a lot of un unknowns in that regard. Um, there's some people a lot smarter than than me working on that, fortunately. Um, but uh, it, it it'll be interesting to see you know what what work is done, and I'm sure there's a ton of work being done right now on on that because that seems to be you know the the only way the only alternative of the, if before we get a vaccine is to get herd immunity through just exposure which is what we've been trying to avoid avoid right now and and you know herd immunity usually happens around when 60 percent of the population has immunity to that disease it's different in different diseases but roughly you know 50 to 60 percent and so if we have one <laughs> patient or one person in all of the island, we're a long ways away from herd immunity, you know, which means that um, um, it's good that we haven't overwhelmed our system, but it's the negative side of that is that we, we, we don't have anywhere close to herd immunity in our, in our population. And so we're all susceptible. Yeah. And there is hope too with the vaccine, sort of like when H1N1 came up, you know, they were able to take a vaccine because we already had flu vaccine and be able to modify it to pretty well cover H1N1. So perhaps if there's a time when we do have a vaccine that would cover COVID-19 and it mutated, the opportunity may be to 
tweak that vaccine more quickly than starting fresh from yeah. having it from creating a new one. Um, finally, I'm going I'm to go out on the. Um, there's a question from a lot of people want to know if there's anything that they can do to build up their immune system to make themselves uh, be able to fight this off more if they get it. I know that there's been um, some there's been some studies in regards to different vitamins or supplements. I have not seen anything come out that's definitive that you know says you know vitamin C, mega doses of vitamin C or something like that will help you fight this off. But I I think that the things that I would encourage and what even said earlier is doing the things that you would do to take care of your health. You know, getting plenty of sleep, getting exercise, eating well. All all these things are are things that will only help your body. Uh, stave off any insult. Um, if you have chronic diseases like diabetes or COPD, making sure you're taking your medicines and, and that you're managing those chronic illnesses um, certainly are going to be things that, that will help you to fight off this infection better. Um, but uh, as, far as, as, as far as I'm aware, and I'll, I'll defer to other people in the, in the room here, but um, I don't know of any sort of special immune-boosting uh, vitamin or mineral or, or supplement that, that will necessarily help at this point. There has been a study done recently that people who are in great cardiovascular shape uh, seem to do far better with this disease regardless of age than people who are not. So Curtis, who loves to go running all the time, he's going to be in good shape. But uh, <laughs> uh, So I encourage you, jump on the bike, uh, go out and go for a walk, hike a mountain, do those things that really get your heart pumping so that cardiovascular, you're, you're in the best shape you can be. And the, th and the last piece of that is just kind of mental health and stress, because we know stress can drop our immunity some. And so as Evan was talking about earlier, you know, just take a deep breath. There are things that are in your control and there are things that are not. And so worrying about all the ifs it doesn't always a healthy thing to do. Dr. Evan Jones, John Everett, uh, Elsa DeHart, Dr. Curtis Mortensen, thank you all for being here again. I'm hoping that next week we can have a discussion uh, about antibodies a little bit. Seems to be a lot of questions going on around that. So... Um, have a safe week. Take care of your friends. Take care of your neighbors. Take care of yourself. And uh, send in questions for next week's edition of Talk of the Rock. Thanks for being with us today. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.